welcome to the UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks, perspectives in medicine. During our program, we continue to cover a variety of hot topics in the sports medicine world and more. Welcome to this week's six to eight weeks. We're joined by physical therapist Jennifer Kinder from UCSF. Jennifer's been with UCSF for a while, but she started her journey at the University of San Francisco, where she graduated in 2003 with a bachelor's in exercise and sports science. She's been an exercise physiologist since that time as well. Went through the physical therapy program at UCSF in San Francisco State and has been with UCSF for the last 13 years with a transitional specialty now into pelvic health. So Jennifer, welcome. I guess the first question is, how did you get into physical therapy? What was your childhood goal to become a physical therapist? Was it access to sports? Was it something else? We can start from there. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I think a lot similar to how many people's journeys into their careers begin. Mine started when I was about five. My brother was diagnosed with a musculoskeletal disorder. I remember going to the physical therapy office. It was a gym. You know, I had to go and 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 I just was really excited to like go to this park that was nearby and like see this random cat that would be there. And meanwhile, you know, I was waiting for that. I'd have to be sitting in the gym and I'd just be looking around and just I think those early exposures really sat with me and because it was just very unique to be in that type of gym. It wasn't like a workout, workout kind of gym, fitness gym, and just seeing what he was doing. And, and as I was growing up, I got really into soccer and running and I started to get to a high competitive level. And as my ability to move increased, his was starting to slowly decrease. And it was very interesting to watch the change in movement. And so I think my eye got really particular and specific to watching movement. And then when I got recruited to run for college, actually had chondromalacia and I was told that I wouldn't run again. You know, I was pretty devastated. I was 18, but I redshirted that year and the college sent me to physical therapy. It was through physical therapy that I was actually able to run even at a better level. And I was just amazed even in high school, I actually wanted to go into physical therapy because the knee pain started then. And I was just really interested with what my brother was going through. But it was really in college where it solidified that. I was like, wow, like I, I'm able to do so much with, without surgery and like actually better than before. It was always my goal to help my brother, you know, walk again, but, you know, you know, really help his quality of life, which I was able to do. Really got excited about physical therapy. I kind of sort of rare in that regard where I wanted to do it in high school and I still want to do it throughout college. I questioned it here and there. In fact, when I got into school, I went to UCSF SFSU program, like you mentioned. Gosh, program's so awesome. I mean, just being at the universities and uh, especially at UCSF with just so much exposure to so many different interdisciplinary fields. I got really into endocrinology. <laughs> I was when I was there, I decided to do the Doctor of Physical Therapy Science program instead of the Doctor of Physical Therapy. So it's the clinical research route. And I got into the translational research and I was really looking at expanding research into the community. So actually I was focused in wellness because at the time, physical therapy wasn't really focused in that. Like they're always rehab. And I was really focused in like the preventative care because that's what kind of really helped me. And then, so after I graduated with my doctorate of physical therapy science, at the same time, I also always loved teaching. So I was teaching anatomy for University of San Francisco. After that, I 
I really want to do all three things, kind of keep myself busy. So I was teaching anatomy and seeing patients. I kind of held off on research for a while, and then I got that back later. That's my route. <laughs> nice. And so, Jen, clinically, you have a specialist as or a specialty as a, a pelvic health physical therapist. What does that mean, and uh, like, what do you treat in that field? I really focus in a lot of peripartum care, so pregnancy and postpartum. That's my own specialty. And then I also see postmenopausal and perimenopausal. I like to always bring that up because there's not just the pre and post. There is that transition area, which I think is being missed. And I treat a lot of incontinence. So all the fun things of leaking of urine, leaking of feces, which you know, includes urgency incontinence, mixed incontinence, frequency incontinence, prolapse, which is falling of the organs into the vaginal canal, which a lot of postpartum women can get and postmenopausal and perimenopausal. And then I treat a lot of pelvic pain. So that's pain with sex, pain with tampon insertion pain with gynecological speculum exam, and then female athletes too. So a lot of just from my kind of like my broad view of when starting in orthopedics, taking this to pelvic health as well. This may be a stupid question, but do men ever have pelvic health problems? They sure do. And we need a lot more pelvic health PTs to treat them because actually the APTA just came out in their magazine about how bringing awareness to pelvic health in men. Yeah, like post-prostatectomy patients, they really need it. We actually treat them very similar to the protocols we give, not most of them want to say protocols, but the same home exercise programs that we're giving women. It's all about this intra-abdominal pressure control and pelvic pain is a big one. I myself, I've treated men in the past, but I really just focus now on pregnancy, postpartum, postmenopausal, female athletes. Just It's just my research interest and my clinical interest. But yeah, yeah, we sure have some great ones too at UCSF that treat men. Yeah, and you mentioned research a few times. What sort of research are you doing right now? Yeah, so I was doing a telehealth case series, really trying to bring telehealth to pelvic health because a lot of it, what, what started was I was actually in private practice beforehand. And so before coming to UCSF and I would see a lot of mamas who were like, you know, they just got out of the hospital and they can't leave their house, you know, or they don't want to. And it's just really challenging or they have other kids at home. And so I was like, gosh, you know, and there's so much I can do by telehealth actually to teach patients how to treat their rehabbing body. And so I was really interested in like, you know, what, what is the telehealth out there for pelvic health? And there's really like nothing. And so did a case series on that. And then we expanded on it and did a randomized controlled trial, which was looking at postpartum women and using telehealth to treat specifically stress urinary incontinence in postpartum women. And we saw some really great results and I'm writing those up. <laughs> I'm always late. I'm writing that up. I feel like, but I presented that now writing it up, really excited for the next steps with that one. And I also have a research study coming out next month, actually, it's in female runners and treating that's in-person treatment for female runners and treating their incontinence as well. And that was using more of a community approach and combining orthopedic and pelvic health programs to then treat their pelvic health issues. We're really trying to bring awareness to like, you know, pelvic health, while it is a specialty, it's like, I'm treating orthopedic too. It's like, you can't just treat the pelvis. It's like it's connected to the whole body. And so really giving, trying to bring more research to that and just more awareness overall. What types of treatments and diagnostic approaches do you use when you know, treating these patients with pelvic health issues? 
I started out as an orthopedic PT. And so just like them, I, I will start with an overall view of their posture. And when we think about pregnancy and postpartum, especially even just, you know, non-pregnancy and postpartum, like our positions of our body are really challenged by sitting all day by computers or, you know, sitting in a car a lot from travel and the change in their posture changes their intra-abdominal pressure control, which then affects their pelvic health. And so I'll look at posture. I'll look at range of motion of their joints. A lot of research out there that shows range of motion in their ankle, in their hip, in their knees is affecting their pelvic health. And then also strength. So look at, you know, muscle imbalances of the body. We know a lot of research of the external rotators of the hip, you know, gluteus medius work that channels right into the pelvic floor. And so oftentimes I can treat a pelvic health issue with just doing everything externally. And, you know, you think I'm just treating orthopedically, but I'm, you know, treating pelvic health through that. If external isn't working or if just from assessment that, okay, you know, an internal exam would be best, then I do do internal pelvic floor muscle assessment, which is done either vaginally or rectally, depending on the patient. And so I'll be looking at like using, so my magic finger basically is what I'm using to assess their internal pelvic floor muscles. I feel like I should have my pelvic floor model here. I feel like I always have it. We look at 24 muscles in the pelvis and I'm assessing there's three layers to it. So superficial, middle, and deep. And so it goes right along with the with the finger, like the first phalanx and then the middle and then distal is where I can test layer one, two, and three. And I'm doing manual muscle testing to their third layer. It's pretty amazing. Like I, especially like my postpartum, you know, I'll have a postpartum mom that comes in and they're like real, you know, athlete and they, you know, are super strong. I'm like, man, they're like three months out and they're so strong. Test their pelvic floor, nothing. I'm like, wow. Like, how is this even? I, I still, to this day, I'm just always amazed with what I find because it's just like, how are you not able to engage this? You know, so we're working on that and it's really fascinating, like the how to get them to, you know, that, with that aha moment of like, wow, that's where it is. Oh, great. And then things just change completely. <laughs> You said you've done a fair amount of telehealth. And I think for better, for worse with COVID, we all learned how to do telehealth. Let's say you had a patient that you were just trying to give advice in what exercises or what stretches to do if they were listening to this and felt like, oh, I might have some incontinence. It's kind of, this sounds pretty familiar. What are your kind of initial suggestions for patients that you could do through telehealth? Love it. I know even uh, like audio wise, just listening to this, right? You can put your hand on your chest and hand on your belly and just see how you breathe. And I know people always want to like, roll their eyes at breathing, but you'd be amazed like through all the work of intra-abdominal pressure control. It really, truly is like I've literally changed the way someone breathes. And that like, that's how all my research started is I'd go and give these workshops and I didn't even know who it was, but they'd email me and they're like, my incontinence is gone. And I'm like, who are you? Like how? And it just from what I taught them in the workshop. So breathing is number one and anybody can do it. You're doing it all day. You might as well do it right. <laughs> and so if you put your hand on your chest and hand on your belly and just do some silent breathing and see which is rising first, when you inhale, we really want to direct the breath into the belly and not let the chest rise because when we start to breathe our chest, it's more of this anxious type of breath. We're not getting full expansion of the belly and the pelvic floor because the pelvic floor is following the diaphragm movement. So that's step one is inhaling, exhaling. And then from there, pick the cue that you like. It's if you're thinking of the vaginal canal, a couple that I like is on exhale, 
you can imagine a straw in your vaginal canal and like sipping a smoothie up through the straw. I know it sounds so funny. And for men, this is a fun one. You imagine a turtle head and on exhale, you're pulling the turtle head into the body. And then the biggest thing too is exhaling. So relaxing the pelvic floor. So then on exhale, just relaxing, letting it go. I think that is learning how to relax your pelvic floor is just as important as engaging it. Yeah, you could start with those things. <laughs> and then for clinicians like us, you know, who don't have like a wide experience with pelvic health conditions, what types of things should we be listening for to understand like who might benefit from treatment? And then is it the best person to send them to you or is like, what's the, the best process for getting these people cared for appropriately? Yeah, I love it. I've even made little handouts for like a lot of personal trainer coaching that, you know, look out for these quote, red flags. So the biggest is leaking of urine. Like it's been so normalized, but it's not normal. It's common, but not normal. And that's the body's way of saying something's wrong with your intra-abdominal pressure control. Let's fix this. And so that's the biggest one is, are you leaking urine or feces? And you know, all the things that they don't expect when they come to you, you know, like they're not going to ask me about this, but it's like, that's actually their orthopedic health too. Well, asking about that, asking if they have pain with sex, pain with tampon insertion, pain with gynecological speculum exam, any heaviness in the pelvis. So that's for prolapse. So if they feel this like bulge in when they wipe or just at, when they run, it's the big one. When they run, they're like, oh, I feel this heaviness like coming into my pelvis. Like, what is this? And then dribbling on the toilet seat, that's a big one too. That can actually be a sign of some pelvic health issues. So those are the big key things. And pain, of course, always. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much, Jen, for joining us. I think this was really informative. And I think especially for our athletes that transition from kind of that high school, college into lifelong exercise enthusiasts, I think this will be really helpful. My last quick question for you is what percent of female athletes, kind of 30 and above, have some of these symptoms? Oh, gosh. I mean, already it shows that women over 50, half of them have incontinence. And that's only the ones that are telling you. (laughs) So, um, you know, for those over 30, we even see those that are, you know, never had kids have a lot of pelvic health issues. So I would say while we're seeing numbers like 20, like one in four is a big one that we that we see in research. But I'd say as the risk factors increase having kids, like you said, over 30, I say the number is closer to half to maybe again, maybe more, you know, just those that are reporting it. All right. I have one more quick last question. Does sitting make it worse as we've transitioned more to sedentary adults or is it not really thought to play a role? I almost want to say like when I started seeing patients coming out of COVID, I did sort of see this like change in their ability to be aware of what they're moving like. It's really interesting. And I don't know if I'm just, you know, making that up from my own biased opinion, but it was just really interesting. It's almost like their body awareness had decreased a bit. They're like going to the gym and I just can't quite like, and I wonder if sitting kind of had something to do with it. Like just sort of being in this one posture all the time. Cause you know, does it affect your pelvic floor? Well, it, it, it depends on if you have a more, you know, tightened pelvic floor versus looser versus weaker, and then, you know, what position your pelvis is in. So as always, it depends, right? I, I do wonder, you know, definitely more sedentary. You're not using your hip muscles as much. So that's going to feed into your pelvic floor and could make it actually tighter because I like to think of them all as best friends. And like when one isn't sharing the load, the others, if your glutes and your hamstrings, everything is getting weaker, then pelvic floor is going to be like, I'll do it. And it's like, oh, you're overactive. You know what I mean? Like calm down. <laughs> so get the other friends doing their job. <laughs> 
All right, great. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. We really appreciate your time at the start of a busy week. So thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks, perspectives in medicine. What do you think of this topic? Connect with us now. In addition to finding our contact form, you'll also find our social media links in our entire six to eight weeks episode archive. Help us grow our listenership by liking, subscribing, and sharing everywhere. We're eager to hear from you, and we'll be sending you more great thought-provoking content in less than six to eight weeks.